You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Joining us to continue our ongoing discussion about localized economies and regional alliances for the purposes of building resilient trade and lessening ecological impacts is Helena Norberg-Hodge, founder and director of Local Futures, Commenting on Brexit, the vote by the United Kingdom to leave the European Union, she wrote in the Huffington Post, quote, I would argue that the global free market, rather than being the solution to today's multiple crises, is largely responsible for them. The path to genuine prosperity, she says, lies in taking economic power away from huge, unaccountable corporations and handing it back to communities and nation states, in other words, economic localization, unquote. Her organization, Local Futures Mission, is to protect and renew ecological and social well-being by promoting a systemic shift away from economic globalization towards localization. Through its Education for Action programs, Local Futures develops innovative models and tools to catalyze collaboration for strategic change at the community and international level. Thank you so much for joining us, Helena. Very glad to be here. You show that everywhere in the world unemployment has increased, the gap between rich and poor is widening, environmental devastation is worsening, spiritual crisis shows up, we see it in teenage suicide, substance abuse, etc. What do all of these trends share in common? They all share in common an economic system that is creating everywhere in the world this bigger gap between rich and poor and for the majority, creating massive insecurity. And that now is extending down to young children who are being pressured harder and harder in school. Uh, I mean, it's very frightening to see it in in the East, uh, particularly in China, Korea, Japan, where where two-year-olds are being pressured now to learn English and maths. And the fear is that, you know, unless they succeed, uh, you know, to be perfect in all of in English and all of these um, uh, in all their lessons they're not going to get a job there's just huge fear and neuroses and these pressures on young children are then translating into all kinds of addictions and and substance abuse and so on but it simultaneously comes images of incredible wealth and opulence so this sort of imagery of of the sort of Trump, you know, gold-leafed uh, existence, and you know, you too can be a millionaire if you just work hard enough. That imagery is being pushed around the world. So at the same time, as you have these intense pressures, you've got an image of somebody who you are supposed to be, and it's a stereotypical, one-dimensional image of complete success, beauty, you know, wealth everything, uh, and that in turn also leads to this pressure that you're just not good enough the way you are. So that's the what I'm seeing around the world at the grassroots, and it's devastating. But I do want to stress that I'm also, as I go around the world, I am seeing you know more and more people waking up and starting to do things differently. So it's not all bleak. 
We need to look at both sides of the coin. And and that's what hopefully we'll be able to cover this hour. You you yes. show that, and you know, it's interesting, when I was a full-time daily broadcaster, I covered the NAFTA. I joked that I'm probably the only person in America that read the whole treaty. And then I read the Gantt. We're talking thousands of pages. Um, and after having read both of them, I was so opposed to them, um, I actually held on the air a going-out-of-nation sale at a local mall, and all people had to do was go through the mall and find something made in America, you know, and bring it back to my yeah. table. But but yeah. you, you, you make so clear the kinds of losses that, for instance, those who voted for Mr. Trump, which I did not, but the thing that he spoke to that is true about the NAFTA is that it resulted, and you point this out, um, according to the Economic Policy Institute, there was a net loss of 680,000 American jobs, and then the permanent normal trade relations deal with China led to a net loss of another 2.7 million jobs. So we're talking about, you know, over 3 million jobs directly that we can account for that are just explicitly gone from this nation, and it it's just sort of a portend of, of what happened elsewhere. So you you and others point out some I of the issues. I would yes, also please. point out that in smaller countries, you know, where we've had ongoing relationships, these changes are so systemic that I would argue that the job losses, the real job losses, and the tremendous insecurity is much, much greater than that, much greater. You know, I mean, we need to look at the fact that in the middle classes now, you know, both parents have to work just for the mortgage. We need to look at books like Juliet Shore's book called The Overworked American for America and my friend Richard Dalthwaite in England, an economist who wrote about the growth illusion. And this is already between the 60s and the 90s. The average American was working one month more per year. And in the UK, what Richard showed was that you know, as GDP was going up, the average Brit was getting poorer. You know, their, their spending power was decreasing. But this is not something that the dominant media, you know, shows us. So we're, you know, we just, we so badly need to make it clear to the 99% that this is really not a, a path they want to go down. And of course, when when people resist it, somehow or other, you know, you're convinced that you're out of step with progress. And there was this notion that going from local economies to regional, then to national, and then finally to global was somehow or this natural evolutionary course we all had to take. And of course, you all at Local Futures have not found that to be true at all. When you and I spoke before that when this was put into the third world equation, as I know from my years of covering, you know, the World Trade Organization or the World Bank and the way they indenture nation states, it was really a form of nation taking. And, um, now we're to the point where we're talking about resource taking by private corporations. So share with us a bit about some of the pushback against this corporatization of nations' resources. Well, around the world, people are waking up. You know, the sort of anti-trade treaty movement, which has grown very rapidly in the last couple of years, is sort of described as the movement of movements. So there, there is a wake-up. But at the same time, we have to be aware that the expansion is still continuing. So it's all very urgent that we join this movement and ensure that we're not just talking about, for instance, taking out the ISDS clauses, which, of course, 
you know, these investor state dispute settlement clauses in the trade treaties is what has really woken a lot of people up to the fact that this process is making a joke of democracy. Uh, you know, you have clauses in the trade treaties that allow, where governments are signing in black and white, yes, big corporations, you can sue us if we do anything that might inhibit your profit-making potential. Uh, and, and this, you know, it's, it's utter insanity. I mean, citizens need to know that their supposed representatives are saying that if we protect the environment, if we protect clean water, if we protect health, if we protect jobs, you can sue us for doing that because it might decrease your profit. Um, so as people hear about this, there, there is a, a big wake-up going on, and it's not just resistance to the TPP, but in Europe to the TTIP, the big treaty between the U.S. and, and Europe and the European Union, and also this CETA treaty that's going through Canada. There is resistance, but we need, we need more. We need more people to wake up. And it's so empowering, I think, if people could just realize that these treaties are the strategic point. They're the path that has so transformed the world, over, particularly over the last 30 years, into a situation where we all know that big banks and corporations are ruling the world. But how did it happen? It's, it's through these trade treaties that they've gained so much power over governments. They've been able to say to them, oh, if you do anything to regulate us or if you do anything to increase the standards for labor or the environment, we'll go elsewhere. And this ability to just move around completely freely, that's what free trade is. It's the freedom for Monsanto, for, for Goldman Sachs. And, um, yeah, so, so there, is, there is increasing pushback, but, but we need more. And in terms of one of the remedies I've read about um, is that corporations would be in the future held to place, meaning place-based production rather than globalization, shopping around for the cheapest labor and, and the least regulatory dominion, you know, that they can claim for themselves, exactly. most of the time ending up more powerful than the nations that they're doing business in. And, of course, people always think about, you know, the truth of the corporate ink running the world and owning the world and owning our Congress, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at this awakening um, now being called the movement of movements, the anti-trade treaty movement, how do the European community say different from the awakening in India? I mean, it's nice because you really do look at a much broader spectrum of audience than some of us focus on day in, day out. Yes, thank you for saying that. I do feel that we're almost unique, unfortunately, still, in that we've ended up, <clears throat> excuse me, working uh, so internationally, even though we're very small. Uh, but we've, we have this perspective from the grassroots, and that means, you know, real people's lives, real soil, real farms, and sort of looking up at the global system and its impact worldwide. The difference is, the big, big difference is that in the so-called global south, you know, where people have been less industrialized, less, less corporatized, less uh, caught up, less technologized as well, uh, there is often less awareness about the problems of this system. 
but they have the structures that allow them to be much stronger, much more independent. So where there is leadership and where, you know, people start moving in another direction, they have a, a type of a structural strength that, uh, you know, that we're lacking. And by that I even mean, you know, that people know more about how to build houses and how to, you know, how to provide food for themselves. And so a, a lot of the things that are happening in the West where people are trying to rebuild local economies. You know, we have to have a period of reskilling and so on. So, but I would say, generally speaking, the consciousness of how this system, um, how destructive this system is, this man-made system, is higher in the industrialized countries. And it almost goes in direct relationship to the degree of industrialization. That means that even in India and, and in China, most of the awareness will be coming out of places like Mumbai and Beijing and, and Delhi, where people have had a taste of high-rise urban living and are beginning to develop a very strong desire for more community, connection to nature. And they realize that this, com this sort of consumer dream is actually more of a nightmare than a dream. You know, the congestion, the pollution. I mean, as you know, you can barely breathe the air in many of those cities. Um, you know, it's just normal now on the news, on the weather forecast. They'll say, yep, better wear your mask tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll he hear that regularly now. You know, there, there are so many um, challenges to the question of polarization of what to believe. And particularly when you have a corporatized yes. media, which itself has such homogeny in not only what it believes, but what it reports. So it's kind of until there's like more, I guess, authentic localized media again. I, I can remember even we have to take our first break. I can remember when I started in talk radio some 25 years ago, um, there were so many small local stations around the country that allowed local citizens to really address local needs. And then sort of the nationalized franchise, you know, syndication took over and pretty much bought out the majority of all these small stations around the United States and knocked out the people's voice for themselves to their local communities and just put in, you know, single voices of single, basically, men with the same point of view, all of them, and all of them pretty much like the Republican Party itself. So there was this movement, and not only did the media get constrained and get smaller, but it got smaller with a very particular agenda, which was not progressive and was not really, look, and it's so strange, it sold itself out. So it's, uh, anyway, we'll be right back. If you're just joining us, I'm Zoe Hieronymus. Helena Norberg Hodges with us. I encourage you to follow her beautiful writing and the work of their organization around the world, localfutures.org. That's localfutures.org. Hi, it's John Peterson from the Arlington Institute. We have speakers every month at Transition Talks in Berkeley Springs. Wonderful speakers that you can come and visit. You can find us at transitiontalks.org. And you're listening to this on 21st Century Radio with Zohara Hieronymus. So, Helena, you know, there are an awful lot of people I interview in the environmental movement and in the agriculture movement. And there's pretty much a consensus of, you know, if, if we're paying attention, earth changes are real, despite whatever 
political persuasion one is of. And we have millions of people moving around without food, without shelter, and that there's an awareness of the local food movement basically being the first thing to change um, and that it's part of this transition to resilience. And when you think about it logically, it makes entire sense if you're going to have an unstable climate to be able to feed yourselves by region. Um, share with us where this kind of awareness is being put in place and why it's so important. I'm so glad you're asking about that. And uh, just thank you for what you're doing. It's just fabulous. And, and what you said earlier about the paucity of radio stations that are able to carry these messages is, is scary. I mean, I would argue, first of all, that's the, that's the biggest issue we're dealing with, is the, the lack of the big picture, the lack of information of what's actually going on on the ground. And that's, you know, both then leading to despair, where people, you know, who have no information, no contact about the very real, truly progressive things that are happening, like the local food movement, um, it's, it's, you know, so getting the word out. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, there is now, thank God, you know, the, the, the knowledge of how you grow food and how you can best do it uh, is growing because the dominant industrial corporate system is simply not working. It is responsible for the, it's the biggest cause of climate change, it is massively wasteful. It's promoting everywhere these giant monocultures which are anti-nature. Nature is diversity. Anybody who's grown even a little garden will know, you know, you'll plant two bushes or two tomato plants or whatever, and one will grow faster than the other, and you have no idea why. Uh, life is diverse. Every single cell in our bodies, every single cell in the leaf of a tree is unique and different and changing all the time. So responding to that diversity is the only way that we are going to be able to feed ourselves in a sustainable way. And that means smaller, diversified farms linked to millions of markets instead of one global market. It means millions of farmers having their seed bank in the soil growing things. It, farmers now know that these seed banks that are set up, you know, trying to freeze seeds, and so it doesn't work. You, to keep the d diversity and the variety alive, you need to keep planting. So having millions of farmers, having, you know, multiple markets, much shorter distances is obviously key for reducing CO2 emissions, for reducing packaging. But one of the main things about a shorter distance between the market and the farm is that the nearby market stimulates, in other words, puts economic pressure on the farmer to diversify. <clears throat> so you can talk to farmers, as I've done, because we've helped to set up lots of farmers' markets around the world. And they'll say, you know, like one farmer here in Australia said, you know, I've been a farmer all my life, and, and ba basically we were under constant pressure to lower our prices and to grow a standard product that would fit the machinery, that would fit the, the supermarket shelves and the packaging and so on. And so, you know, a lot of, of uh, uh, one product was avocados, you know, had to be thrown away. 
now after the farmer's market, it's like entering a new galaxy. And he just beams, you know, because now he's growing 18 different things, you know, including, you know, some, some vegetables, uh, some um, papaya, and, and increasing the diversity. And let's keep in mind, you know, that if you have a, a, a hurricane, the wind will be destructive of certain things, but not of everything. If you have a frost, the same thing, you know, certain plants will die, but others won't. And so the diversity is absolutely key now as we're moving into a more unstable climate. It's also key because it's the only way that farmers can actually increase productivity. I mean, this is the biggest lie of all that we've been led to believe, which is that big farms and big supermarkets are necessary to feed the world. Those giant monocultures can never, ever compete with diversity. So if you imagine you take two, I, might, I hope I'm not going on too long, but if you take two pieces of land, if you plant, you know, if you have vegetables and bushes and some trees and some animals in the cycle of that diversified farm, you will every time be able to produce more from that bit of land than you would if you just grew one thing. And what's very frightening about the monocultures and the corporate industrial system is that it's not only one kind, but they're reducing, you know, the species diversity. So the homogeneity is it's deadly. I mean, it's... Uh, Truthfully you know, deadly. I mean, you know, yeah. to think about the easiest way to wipe the human race off the planet, yeah. just, just diminish the quality of food for everybody and availability of seed and... That's kind of the very nefarious story that it looks like when you sort of take the the big lens from outer space and look down at these corporations who are not only in the deadly pesticide, insecticide, fungicide business, but they're also the ones that are the seed cartels. And their interest yeah. in seed is not feeding people, but controlling people and controlling who can plant what and when they can plant it and what kind of awful GMO food it might be. Fortunately, even that movement has been given enough resistance by Europe and other parts of the world that America were very late in coming up with resistance, but it's happening. And, you know, it always interests me because I interview so many wonderful permaculture farmers and biodynamic farmers, etc., and we we kind of laugh because it's almost like a back to the future. When we look at our agrarian and peasant farms, they were beautifully well-designed systems based yeah. on yeah. seasonal rotation, the resources, the native plants and species, and the family community, you know, that was part of this normal feeding design of the individual or the state. So when you use the word monoculture and people think of that as an agricultural term, it's also an export term for everything. And we assign countries to a monoculture export of something that, A, if it's food, they need it for themselves and their own animals, or they end up like we've seen recently in South American countries where there's no food in the grocery stores in Venezuela one day. Exactly. It's wonderful, the work you're doing. I I really think, you know, the biggest issue is how can we get this information out? Because thank goodness, what I keep saying these days is that information is trickling upwards. Mm-hmm. So there have been some major UN studies that are confirming what I'm saying and what you know my colleague Vandana Shiva is saying and so on. So there is some awareness growing, but it needs to get out there much faster 
because this big study, you know, that was done, YASTA, this International Assessment of Agricultural Science and Technology for Development, this is this huge study involving about 35 countries and so on. I think it was a four-year study. When the results came out, they said very clearly, we cannot continue in this corporate, large-scale industrial direction. We've got to support genuine farmers gen and, and diversity. And that's, the results were just squashed. I mean, it, it didn't make it in the media. You know, it was the head of the study announced when it came out that if we continue in this direction, we'll be living on a planet no one wants to inhabit. And I would say no one can inhabit. No, I think that's true. No one can is a more truthful response. And yeah. and also the interesting thing, it's only logical when you stop and think about these things very quietly without a political um, overtone and just think of it as a human that localized economies adapt to what that region can sustain and what that soil grows naturally and what their water resource is. I mean, when one of my guests recently, we were talking about, you know, the Dust Bowl that has returned to this country and why the buffalo were always so important to restoration of our plains and grasses. And he pointed out to me that, um, that the agrarian agriculture in California, just as an example of crazy, crazy big farming, is only 2% of the state's economy, but it uses 80% of California's water. And that is really a beautiful demonstration of the picture worldwide, and we're doing it right here in our own free California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, it's the, the madness of it, the waste of it. And when you look at it globally, it's even more dramatic, you know, and I think, one of the things that opened my eyes was seeing how, you know, high up on the Tibetan plateau, butter was coming in from, you know, having been transported about 10 days, and it was delivered in the local market up at 12,000 feet, you know, altitude, uh, for half the price of local butter. And as I ended up studying, you know, what was going on, that's what opened my eyes to this global system, and I found, you know, in in Kenya, I found Dutch butter costing half the price of Kenyan butter. I found in Mongolia, where they have 20 million milk-producing animals. It was German butter, and you couldn't even find Mongolian butter. I found, you know, in Denmark, butter from from uh, France. I found in England, butter from New Zealand selling for a third of the price of local butter. You know, like the farm down the road, the local butter costs three times as much as the butter from New Zealand. Now, as I started talking to farmers about this, because they didn't have that global knowledge, they had been told, oh, yes, yes, we know that our English butter is getting uh, sent over. You know, some farmers told me to, to Belgium. It all gets exported because they need it for their fine chocolate or whatever. They had all these stories that simply weren't true. They didn't see this big corporate hand. They didn't see that their taxes were funding a global infrastructure instead of a local one. They didn't see that their taxes were studying, you know, funding research at university, which was developing bigger and bigger machinery and genetic engineering, etc., cetera, uh, for, for the big corporate system. So for me, you know, the big issue is blindness, that so many of us have ended up supporting this system because there hasn't been 
a way for us to look at that global system from a global perspective. And that's really what, you know, what I'm, what we're about and more and more people are about, and I just hope we can uh, get the word out. Because everywhere that we see this localization movement growing, it's like, it's, it's just such a win-win-win strategy. And for me, the most maybe inspiring and and yeah, most sort of wonderful thing about it is to realize that it's happened without any help. It's come, you know, it's been blood, sweat, and tears from the grassroots, no funding, no media help, regulations work against us. And despite that, the human will, the perseverance, the common sense, and the joy that comes from it once it gets started has not only, you know, managed to get things started, but now things are really growing uh, in terms of this movement. And we are now working with a network of 35 mayors in South Korea, for instance, who are now committed to promoting localization and local food. It's it's still not, you know, it's well, not I think enough. that that's what, what you just said is so interesting to me, having been a commentator about the World Bank indenturement and nation-taking, what I refer to as extreme politics, and where you'd ransack a nation, you know, destroy the infrastructure, and then give your boys the contracts to rebuild, things that the nation itself doesn't even need or want, um, and then they're indentured with the debt that they pay for you know, the the guys at the top who take the cream off, off the dessert of, of whatever's been served to the people. You know, what's yeah. so interesting, though, and we're going to take a break, when we come back, you've worked on several things that um, are so beautiful that I wouldn't want to leave this evening without your sharing with the public. And one of them is your work called Ancient Futures, and the other is yeah. your project, your happiness project. I just think that these are such wonderful examples of, you know, when we look closely at human resilience. And by the way, I'd like to add the other beautiful thing, Helena, to what you said, is that when communities do this and they start building in resilience, it means, A, we're safer in the long run and the short run, but B, it does exactly the thing that globalization has hampered, which is community building, the actual exactly. knowing your neighbor and knowing what they can do and what somebody down the street can do or needs. And and it has a life-affirming um, addition that no purchase power can give you because these aren't things you can buy. They're only things you can experience by doing. Exactly. So it, it strengthens the human spirit as well. And that's one of the things I love so much about what's happening worldwide. And I think what I was about to say about the Korean example is that the countries themselves and their own leadership know how bad it is, and they know how bad their debt is. I mean, if the Greek people would stop and think about what they can do together, they'd be able to bucket like the Britishers just have, even though people think it's very radical. It's also very understandable to want to create your own destiny. And for yeah. those who want to do it for the betterment of their fellow countrymen and women and to restabilize your local future, just as you all call it, it's obvious. I mean, it's just so logical as for anybody to argue against it seems like, where are you from? Yeah, yeah. Although I can tell you about some of those arguments because we've heard them a lot over the years. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, that's the state yeah. of affairs, but it is interesting when a paradigm and, begins know, to shift. Yeah, it's interesting to note, though, you know, that a lot of intellectual 
thinkers on the left have been very, very, um, have even been anti-localization. They've interpreted it as some kind of selfish Western or middle class uh, effort to just look after ourselves. And it's because they just haven't, you know, they haven't read our stuff. They haven't understood that this is really about strengthening local economies worldwide. And they bought into a lot of econometric propaganda about how these poor people in the global south need to keep exporting to us in order to survive. That's one of the one of the big myths that keeps, and that's also funded by corporate think tanks. Yeah, and I was going to say that's an NGO think because they're dependent on government money often to do the work of doing good. And so when you're part of the system and in the loop, it's a little hard to vote out the loop that you depend on for your resources. But having said that, that doesn't diminish the the good effort and the good intention. But yes, you're right. And um, I think that the world, my impression after having covered this now for 30 some years is that the earth itself will call the shots. And the climate change itself, I believe, is going to become so severe that localization and regionalization is going to be the survival pickup. But I believe, like you believe, that this is what we should be doing now to make the entire planetary community more resilient to the changes that are already beginning. Yeah. And I do want to add, let's remind people, and we'll talk about that with the happiness work, that this is it's not just about uh, the survival and, and resilience. It is about the fact that it's now very clear to those honest and more holistic psychologists and social workers and so on that one of the main reasons for depression, for addiction, is that we're cut off mm-hmm. from one another. It's a type of loneliness. It's a type of alienation from life. And reconnecting to life and to others is what makes people happier. Beautifully said. We'll be right back. Our guest is Helena Norberg-Hodge, their organization, localfutures.org. Hi, this is Rick Houston from Primitive Cafe. You can find us on Facebook, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Our guest, Helena Norberg-Hodge, has a beautiful article entitled Britain and the EU, Beyond the False Dichotomy, and it's at the HuffingtonPost.com. You ought to take a look at it. She is, if you've been with us this hour, you know, the founder and director of Local Futures, International Society for Ecology and Culture, and producer and co-director of the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness. So that's what you touched on, Helena, right before the break when I was saying, well, you know, resilience is survival and this and that, and it is that. But it's also, as you pointed out, the model for happiness. So share with us what you've been doing on that. Well, the, essentially, I had this sort of eye-opening experience in Ladakh and Bhutan. People have probably heard of Bhutan, and, and that was that I encountered there people who were happier and more relaxed and, and healthier mentally and physically healthier than any I had encountered in the world. And I had had wide experience. I spoke six languages at that point and had, you know, seen a lot of the world. And I reached these countries at a point when they had just opened up to the outside world and learned to speak the language fluently in in Ladakh or, or Little Tibet. And then I witnessed what happened 
as the area was opened up to so-called growth and development, and saw how one of the main factors was, as I said earlier, you know, introducing this sort of image of success, this distant media image of who you're supposed to be, and that was accompanied by almost immediately creating scarcity in terms of jobs and, and opportunities to survive. And and uh, competition then, of course, increases dramatically. So I saw this sort of breakdown of community relationships and witnessed how in a very short time that led not only to unhappiness but also to violent conflict between local groups that had lived side by side happily for centuries. Now, I'm also, I'm, I'm from Sweden and grew up in Sweden where, you know, Racism, xenophobia were just, you know, we just were just not there. And I've seen over the last 30 years, with the economic insecurity, the breakdown of community, and the influx of immigrants, how prejudice, fear, and you know, really very frightening trends are emerging. What I've also seen is that the key to the happiness of these people in the Himalayas was strong community, a sense of being able to rely on one another, a sense of collaborative relationships, a sense of connection. And it's just thrilling to have been part of, and you know, for almost yeah, 40 years, we've been promoting this sort of community-building path through localization that helps to build not only community structures just because they're nice, but it actually starts building real interdependence at the local level that takes on a complete, you know, it's the antidote to the mm-hmm. competitive system. So even, you know, people normally probably wouldn't reflect on this, but when I see, you know, to take the farmer's market again, you know, when I see the farmers talking to the consumers, and I see the exchange that goes on between people who previously were often in very different camps. The farmers were often very skeptical about organic and these greenies who were, you know, didn't want them to use chemicals and so on. Now, as they start meeting customers who actually don't mind if there are some brown specks on the apples because they actually prefer that to the perfect-looking supermarket apple, and so on. You know, you start getting a coming together of polarized views. You start building an interdependence. You start creating structures that create more jobs. You even see in a lot of the localization initiatives how it allows people to slow down a bit and enjoy life more. You know, an experience like shopping, Mm -hmm. when you're rushing through the supermarket, I don't know if you've heard, have you heard of these studies? You know, they've shown how in the supermarket, as people are rushing around, you know, it's a completely different experience. And they've studied the difference in the supermarket and the farmer's market experience. And they find that in the farmer's market, you know, people have 10 times more conversations with other people. And not just with the farmers, but with each other. And and it's not just local food, although I have to stress that that's the most important and the the most inspiring of the localization initiatives. And it's for anybody who's interested in what we're talking about here and want to pursue it further, I hope they'll 
look at our website and they'll see that you know we would recommend very strongly starting with with some kind of local food and you'll probably find in the area where you live there are projects already that you can support or join but then to build on from that there are lo- local finance initiatives where communities get together to support this flowering of a path that does make us genuinely happier and it's the best thing we can do for the planet so it's just incredibly sexy and exciting and this is why this movement is growing very rapidly now well and and, you know and and again it it grows from authentic need just not the need for job though that's pretty fundamental but this need of connectedness as you're talking about and it's so interesting to me because our planet is coming slowly into alignment with the galactic center and that doesn't happen often it happens with procession of the equinox and I think it's like every 27,000 years or something. I could be wrong. I don't really remember. I just know it's not every week and it's not every decade. And so it's an unusual experience. And some have said that while we do that, we kind of reawaken to our purpose as a humanity, not just as an individual within some sort of superimposed construction um, of unauthentic power. And that was the other thing that while you were talking, it, it made me think so much about the difference between real power and assigned power, whether it's political power or appointed power or power you gain in a corporation. The kind of power you're talking about is power that can't be undone. You know, when community actually share together building something together, it doesn't matter what happens in the world. That doesn't get undone. It's like love in a family, regardless of what happens, the love remains. And, exactly. and and that's really what's so interesting is the push that globalization and then the Internet, while it brings everybody together on a superficial level into one place and time very quickly, it can, having come from the generation of mimeographs and leafleting. <laughs> These kids, yeah. I say, you don't know how easy you have it to just little tweet something and show up. But nonetheless, that also shows that as things get more superficial, it it becomes um, the the job to become more genuine. So it's sort of yes, like, to me, think, that's the difference. Yeah, and I also, I just, I want to say to you that my favorite movement in the world, well, I've got lots of movements I'd love, but, you know, local food movement is the number one. Yeah. And Via Campesina is a very important part of that. And you reminded me now, talking about the Internet as compared to the slower approach, that I love the five-star movement in Italy, I think they combined the use of the Internet to get the word out, but then very, very importantly, they built up local groups. And they basically went from zero to, in six years, being able to go into Parliament and take half of Berlusconi's vote. Berlusconi, by the way, was a real Trump character in Italy. Very, very strong parallel. And in six years, uh, you know, by using the Internet, but, as I say, crucially, building up local groups that got together and started also running people at the local government level. Uh, And they're still in Parliament now. They refuse to go into coalition. They're a very, very interesting model of how we can change things politically as well as at the local level. And we do need to look at both. But I, sure. feel that, uh, I feel that um, 
unfortunately, there's a tendency for people to be either mm-hmm. only only focusing on one or the other. Yes. Well, and yeah, that's also that's also our culture. You know, dichotomy makes company flourish because you don't want this product, you want ours, or you don't want yeah. this politician, you want the other. And I like the teaching of it's this and that. And whenever somebody tells you it's only this or that, then you know you got the wrong messenger and the wrong message because it's always going to be some of this and some of that. Yes, yes. And that's also where I get a bit, um, you know, sometimes I'm wondering whether I should use the term of globalization uh, from from the bottom or grassroots globalization or not. I tend to... In other words, you know, it's not yeah. just about localization. We need to connect internationally. We desperately need real international collaboration. But even at the grassroots, we can so benefit by getting more genuine information, which we have to work at. So this is something that I call big picture activism. That if we, you know, it's it's a really tricky thing because what well, I'm let me encourage our audience. We have to say good night and thank you again, Helena, for being with us. Go to www.localfutures.org. Twenty first century radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs>